Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people, and I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders past and present. This podcast episode contains some graphic descriptions of murder and sexual assault. There are references to mental illness and to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. It's the 27th of November, 1937, Saturday night at the movies all over Australia. And the inner Newcastle suburb of Hamilton is no exception, with the Roxy Cinema showing a new double bill. The theatre's 1800 plush red and blue seats are filled with people dressed up for their big night out. Couples canoodle over armrests, teens cackle and carry on, and mums and dads wrangle kids desperate to roll jaffers down the aisle. Ushers show latecomers to their seats and everyone stands to sing God Save the King. Then, it's on with the show. Through the haze of cigarette smoke, the projector's brilliant beam fills the silver screen with newsreels, shorts and previews of coming attractions. The supporting film, King of Gamblers, is about a crime boss protecting his New York slot machine empire the only way he knows how. Sure you squeal? Until he comes up against a newspaper reporter and his nightclub singer girlfriend. Not unless the murders in this town keep piling up. If they do, I'm going to tell the truth. Sitting together in the Roxy tonight are Dorothy Everett and Thomas Donegan. Dot and Tom. The lives of these two are about as far removed as can be from the plucky couple now up on screen. But of course they are. That's what the movies are for. Everyone's here to enjoy an escape from the everyday. Dot's day-to-day is the drudgery of cleaning and scrubbing as a living kitchen maid at the fancy Anglican boarding school up on the hill, the suburb that's one of Newcastle's swankiest. Tom works with his hands too. 
He's an electrical fitter and he lives in a boarding house here in Hamilton. Ordinary jobs for an ordinary couple. Dot's 27, medium build and height, her light brown hair cut into a bob. She's pleasant looking, if no great beauty. Tom has a roundish face topped with hair dyed dark because he's already going grey at just 35. They've been seeing each other for three years and they've talked about marrying. If Tom had more money, he'd pop the question officially. Instead, he takes Dot out three times a week. After intermission, it's time for the main attraction, a musical comedy called Artisan Models. Jack Benny is a wisecracking New York advertising man trying to turn his catalogue model girlfriend, Ida Lupino, into the face of a million-dollar campaign for a snooty silverware company. Of course, of course. I love babies. Oh, do you? Oh, yes. I used to be one myself. Along with the laughs, there are plenty of songs, from country warbling, complete with yodeling, to a foot-thumping Harlem number. But the biggest hit is Connie Boswell's plaintive Whispers in the Dark. The lyrics really are lovely and wistful. Whispers in the dark, two shadows in the night, how heavenly they seem, lips and arms surrendering, like a dream within a dream. Artisan Models caps its charming comedy with that most romantic of romantic endings. Going to a costume ball, Ida Lupino, gowned as Cinderella, rides in a fairy tale carriage. There, she's reunited with her love, dressed as Prince Charming, who even fits a fallen slipper to her dainty foot. The words, the end, appear over the paramount peak with its crown of stars. Then it's curtains and the lights go up. Cinematic Cinderella spell broken, it's time to go home to the humdrum. Dot, the kitchen maid, has to work from dawn tomorrow. Yet, there's always next week to look forward to. The coming attractions promise a new side-splitter from those madcap Marx Brothers. But Dorothy May Everett won't ever see a day at the races. Escape as fantasies with funny people and fairy tale endings and final kisses before fade-out, Dot won't ever enjoy any of that again. As the stroke of midnight approaches, almost everything of Dot's life is now behind her. All that awaits, up on the hill overlooking Newcastle, are whispers in the dark and two shadows in the night. But when lips and arms surrender, it won't be a dream within a dream. It'll be a nightmare within a nightmare. I'm Michael Adams and this is part one of the five-part Forgotten Australian miniseries, The Vampire Murder. I'll be releasing the rest of the instalments this week and next. But if you'd like to hear the whole story now, all five parts are available to show supporters as a thank you for helping me make this podcast. Supporting for the price of a fancy-ish coffee a month gets you early ad-free access, a show shout-out, and exclusive original full-length bonus episodes. The latest extra content is a 40-minute audio preview of my forthcoming book, Hanging Ned Kelly, which is about the crazed executioners who ran amok in Melbourne during the 19th century. The Patreon link to support Forgotten Australia is in your show notes. And there's also a link that'll take you to Hanging Ned Kelly's page at Booktopia, so you can see the cover and the blurb. A big shout out to recent supporters, Wesley Scott, Judith Turner, Sean O'Connor and Brenton Taylor. Australia has an impressive roster of notorious murders and mysteries, but it's a relatively small selection that tend to have been told and retold. 
Most of us have heard about the Pajama Girl and the Shark Arm case, the Graham Thorne kidnapping and the Beaumont children's disappearance. But somehow, the murder of Dorothy May Everett slipped out of memory. That's despite it being one of the most sensational cases of the 1930s. One that had people packing the court's galleries and editors splashing lurid headlines across front pages all over Australia. I stumbled upon the vampire murder, as Truth dubbed it, a few years ago while researching another episode. At the time, I filed it away for future investigation, thinking it'd be interesting but relatively clear-cut. More fool me. The five instalments you're going to hear are the result of reading and comparing a couple of hundred newspaper reports, most of them from 1937 and 1938. While court transcripts aren't available, these articles individually ran as long as 10,000 words, and they gave blow-by-blow speculation about how the murder happened, followed detectives' attempts to identify suspects, and related witnesses' often contradictory stories, and the claims and counterclaims of the police, prosecution and defence in not one, but two long court proceedings. All descriptions, dialogue, theories and so on are taken directly from such articles. I've also looked at census forms, electoral rolls, passenger lists, and other records found at Ancestry.com.au, and I've also consulted military files from the National Archives of Australia. I even watched those two movies that played at the Roxy to get a sense of what Dot saw on her last night alive. At the time, her murder was compared with a jigsaw puzzle, and that's entirely appropriate because there are so many pieces. I've tried to fit them together for a panoramic picture of who these people were and what they went through. A lot of it is bizarre and mysterious. You're going to hear about a night stalker who prowled Newcastle streets, about a terrified woman who testified under the codename Miss X, about a sinister pen pal nicknamed The Yank, about a shifty morgue keeper, and about a dental expert who fancied himself an armchair forensic psychologist. Then, there were the detectives determined to do whatever it took to put a noose around the neck of a sadistic sexual maniac. Firstly though, this is the tragedy of a young woman whose complexities, in conjunction with a society that encouraged women's silence, meant she kept secrets that may have played a role in her own terrible death. Dorothy May Everett was born on the 2nd of April 1910 in the Newcastle suburb of Mayfield. She was the first child of recently married couple James and Isabella Everett. Her dad was a train driver and the family moved around during the first decade of Dot's life. By the time she was two, they were in Lithgow, west of the Blue Mountains, where the couple had their second child, a baby boy. Next, Murrumburra, about 100 miles west of Goulburn, where three more children were born. Finally, around 1921, James and Isabella settled in Taree on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. This country town boomed in the decade that followed, shiny automobiles parked in a long row in the centre of its wide main street, which was lined with fine businesses. Here, James and Isabella had another three children, which was par for the course in their new hometown. Maybe there was something in the water, but by 1928, Tari had a birth rate five times that of the state average. Luck smiled on the Everetts, all eight children surviving infancy, which wasn't always the case in big families. Someone was watching over James too, 
walking away unscathed from two freak train accidents that saw his name in all the newspapers. Dot and her seven brothers and sisters would go to public school in Taree and then be educated as Anglicans at Sunday school at St John's. When young Dot saw her name in the local papers, it wasn't for anything nearly as exciting as her dad's brushes with death. Rather, she was noted in passing as being a good Bible student at the annual St John's prize giving, or being a good citizen for helping out at a charity fete to raise money for the Druids Lodge. By 1929, a few years out of school, Dot was in domestic service, working as a maid for the wife of a prominent Tare dentist. Dot kept this job year in, year out. Around 1935, now aged 25, she met Thomas Donegan, an electrical fitter. Tom was eight years her senior, originally from Balmain, down in Sydney, but then working in one of Tare's garages. Dot and Tom started seeing each other. But after a few months, there was a break in their togetherness. Dot finally resigned her Tari job and went to Newcastle to work as a maid at the Girls' Church of England Grammar School. But when Elsie, Dot's sister, who worked in Sydney as a maid in Chatswood, quit her position, Dot decided to fill the vacancy. Life in the big smoke had its charms. The depression was easing, the New Harbour Bridge was grand, and there was plenty to do. But Dot didn't get on with her new boss. She resigned and, in late July or early August 1937, moved back to Newcastle. Dot was now back in Tom's orbit full-time because he was living in the suburb of Hamilton. Dot briefly took a domestic service job near his place. But Dot only worked for this woman briefly and, on the 4th of October, she had a new job, live-in maid at the fancy Broughton School up on the hill. Broughton was a Church of England day and boarding school for boys from the better side of the tracks. It was on Church Street, the main thoroughfare through the hill, which overlooked the waterfront and the Hunter River. This elite enclave, lined with magnificent homes and luxury flats, was Newcastle's answer to Melbourne's Toorak or Sydney's Vaucluse. Broughton's main house, Rohallian, Gaelic for Little Red Hill, was a stately sandstone mansion set on a rise. It had been one of Newcastle's finest private homes for nearly half a century before the Church of England acquired it for a new school in 1926. Broughton's grounds fronted Church Street on the northern side but were nestled behind a high brick wall. Cars could enter via a double gate into which was set a smaller wicket gate for those on foot. There was also access to the school from Tyrell Street on the southern side. Broughton's headmaster was the Reverend Harold Futrell, formerly of King's School, Parramatta. He and four masters taught the boys, including 18 boarders, with these live-in students aged from seven years. Three of these boarders were 15, so well on the way to manhood. One master, John Sherlock, aged 23, had a room in the main house, while the other three male teachers lived in a detached building. Reverend Futrell's wife, Edith, looked after their nine-year-old daughter and she also supervised Broughton's five servants. There was Elsie Geary, the cook, whom Dot assisted in the kitchen. Mrs Geary was then about 42, 15 years older than Dot and a bit of a den mother, and they shared a bedroom at the front of the house. Small didn't begin to describe these quarters. The room was 12 feet wide, 
with less than window space between two single beds along each wall. Broughton's two housemaids, Jean Lamb and Eileen Crockett, shared similarly small digs at the rear of the house. Also back there, near the tennis court, was the bedroom of Len Roberts, the school's handyman and gardener. Dot hadn't liked Broughton from the moment she started. Mrs Futrell, she was a harsh taskmistress, always cracking the whip. In October, around the time Dot signed on, two maids had left abruptly and without notice. In a tears, Mrs Futrell hurriedly hired two replacements. These girls found her and the work so hard that they lasted less than 24 hours before they too did a runner. Dot wouldn't be that rude. But since Tari, she'd demonstrated that she didn't stick with jobs she didn't like. Broughton was going to be another short engagement. She told Tom that once the school term was finished, she'd resign and find a better place to work. In the meantime, though, unless she went out at night, she was stuck in that little bedroom with Mrs. Geary. Going out with Tom was her main escape, and the pictures could transport her to far bigger and more exciting worlds. Dot had made a curious impression on her roommate, Mrs. Geary. The cook thought the kitchen maid was depressive and furtive. One night, late, Dot sat on her bed, head in hands, not saying anything. Mrs. Geary asked what was wrong. Dot hadn't said anything. Mother hen, Mrs. Geary, had told her to get into bed. Instead, Dot had left and gone to the kitchen and stayed away for a long time. On another occasion, Dot had been crying, and when Mrs. Geary asked what was wrong, she claimed it was a toothache. Mrs. Geary didn't really believe her. Just like she didn't believe Dot's explanation one time when she came in way past 2am. There'd even been a night she didn't come home at all, and offered another strange explanation. Other Broughton women also thought Dot a little unusual. Mrs. Futrell believed her to be a very quiet girl and the maid, Jean Lamb, thought she was depressed. When she'd asked Dot what was wrong, Dot had replied that she kept her troubles to herself. Dot was secretive. So secretive that she didn't tell the women she worked with something they had a right to know. One night in mid-November, Dot had been walking back to school, and rather than go a block farther south and use the well-lit rear entrance on Tyrell Street, she took the shorter route through Churchwalk Park. This meant going up 100 or so zigzag steps to the bottom of the poorly lit Church Street. Dot had been taking this shortcut when she'd been followed, chased and accosted by a man. She fought off this stranger with her umbrella. He'd fled, but she'd fallen onto the steps and hurt her breast. Rather than tell Reverend and Mrs. Futrell and let the other girls know they might be in danger, Dot kept quiet because she didn't want to cause a fuss. But she did tell Tom and her sister Elsie. Yet, even recounting her close call to those closest to her, Dot's description was vague. Elsie thought the attempted attack had been on the zigzag steps, but Tom had the impression it had been inside the school property. Dot also didn't report the attack to the Newcastle police. Here, her reticence was far easier to understand. Dot, like so many other girls and women, would have been resigned to the fact that sex pests and worse were the price they were forced to pay for being female. Even if the police believed a complaint, they were unlikely to do much. If they did, any arrest, charge and attempt at prosecution 
came with the likelihood that the victim would be publicly slut-shamed only for the perpetrator to then walk free. Such legal negligence was tantamount to pressure on girls and women to maintain their silence. And this, of course, meant that harassers, flashers, stalkers, grabbers and rapists knew they had every chance of getting away with their crimes. As criminology has now established, some such offenders escalate their behaviour all the way to murder. On Tuesday the 23rd of November, four days before she died, Dot went to dinner at the Newcastle home of Mr and Mrs Tiplady. They'd been her neighbours in Taree and had known her since she was a child. On this visit, Dot told them about being accosted. Again, she didn't go into any great detail, but Dot had supposedly said she was so rattled by the experience she was considering going back to Taree. Dot told these friends that whenever she took the zigzag steps, she always had one eye over her shoulder. Yet why take this dark route at all when the Tyrell Street way was so much safer? This wasn't explained. Just as perplexing, given Mr Tiplady said Dot was really frightened, was that when he offered to drive her home that night, she said not to worry and that she'd be fine getting home herself. On Friday night, the 26th of November, Dot and her sister Bessie visited their uncle, John Davis, who also lived in a Newcastle suburb. Dot was upset about something, but she didn't say what it was. Dot wanted to talk to Elsie, but her sister wasn't there. Dot worked at Broughton on Saturday and then got herself ready to go out with Tom. They were due to go to the Roxy in Hamilton, but Dot wasn't sure she was going to enjoy that double bill, and she told Mrs Geary she might try to convince her boyfriend to go into Newcastle to the Theatre Royal, which was showing Dangerously Yours starring Cesar Romero and Alcatraz Island, which featured Australia's own new Hollywood movie star, Little Mary Maguire. Dot put on her brassiere, bloomers, singlet and corset. Even though it was nearly summer, she was prone to feel the cold more than most. So, as was her habit, she put on a pair of grey woolen stockings and then pulled on another pair of brown silk stockings over the top. Dot slipped into a cotton dress, blue with white dots. It did up the front, with eyelets from navel to neck. Dot cinched the dress with a blue suede belt. She put on her black shoes and then pulled on her brown tweed coat with a fur collar. Before Dot left her room, she turned down her bed and set out her pyjamas. Wearing black gloves and carrying a black handbag, Dot made her way out into the late spring evening at quarter past seven. A quick walk, a quick tram journey, and Dot met Tom as arranged at 7.30 a few blocks from the Roxy in Hamilton. If Dot tried to convince Tom to go to the Roxy for the other double feature, she didn't succeed. They bought tickets for the King of Gamblers, followed by Artisan Models. Prince Charming is claiming his bride. At midnight, Cinderella changes into Paula's shoe. Dot and Tom, doing what tens or even hundreds of thousands of couples were also doing right then, settling in for Saturday night at the movies. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mrs. Geary awoke in the room she shared with Dot at Broughton School at 10 past midnight. Housemaid Eileen Crockett, who'd also been out for the night, had come home singing. Mrs. Geary called out for the foolish girl to pipe down because she'd wake everyone up. Mrs. Geary saw that Dot hadn't come home yet. She went back to sleep and woke up again at 2 o'clock. Dot still hadn't come in. Mrs. Geary drifted off. When she awoke at 5.30 to start work, her roommate still hadn't returned. Bed unslept in, pyjamas untouched. There was nothing to worry about. That had happened before. Getting up, Mrs. Geary went to see Eileen in her room. As they chatted, handyman Len Roberts strolled past the open doorway, coming from his quarters and going to get ready for work. It was Eileen's day off. Mrs. Geary told her to get up and go out or she'd put her to work. There were things needed doing, especially with Dot AWOL. Eileen could live without a day of scrubbing pots and pans, so she quickly got up, got dressed and was soon walking down the school grounds. As she made her escape, she noticed a handkerchief on the grass. It occurred to her that Mrs. Geary might have dropped it, but Eileen wasn't about to risk going back, and so she continued on, leaving via the Church Street wicket gate, ready to enjoy her Sunday. Mrs. Geary was now in the kitchen having her morning cup of tea. At the table, also having a cup, was housemaid Jean Lamb, a pretty brunette in her mid-twenties. Handyman Len Roberts was having a brew too. 33, Welsh by birth, he was tall but slight, with dark hair and blue eyes, handsome in an angular Basil Rathbone kind of way. At the table, Mrs. Geary mentioned that Dot hadn't come home again. At half past six, when Jean Lamb took tea into Mrs. Futrell in her upstairs bedroom, she told her mistress this news. Dorothy went out to go to the pictures and has not come back, she said. Her case is still in her room. This last bit of information was important to Mrs. Futrell, and even though she'd been reassured, she went to Dot's room to see for herself that the girl hadn't packed her things and become the latest maid to do a runner. Satisfied she wouldn't have to place another help-wanted ad, she thought Dot was probably at her sister Elsie's place, so Mrs. Futrell phoned. No, Elsie said, Dot wasn't there. Maybe she'd gone to their uncle and aunt's place. Mrs. Futrell asked Elsie to please find out. It wasn't Dot's day off until Tuesday. Elsie said she'd check. But Dot's sister clearly wasn't alarmed because she didn't follow up straight away. Around this time, Jean Lamb was in the upstairs hallway, opening the window that was over a desk with a mirror. As Jean did so, she caught sight of something odd. Down the slope of the grounds, near a clump of bamboo and a shrub, by the brick wall that bordered Church Street, there was something white, or maybe grey. It was 35 yards distant, in a bit of shadow in the early morning, and she couldn't make out exactly what it was. But Jean had a dreadful sensation. She tried to set it aside, but couldn't put it entirely out of her mind. Downstairs, she said to Mrs. Geary, Something is lying near the front fence. It looks like a body but it must be a log with paper on it. Hearing this object was white, Mrs. Geary dismissed what the maid clearly feared by saying Dot was dressed in blue. Seemingly reassured, perhaps even put in her place, Jean went on with her day's work, cleaning the study. 
By 20 to 8, Reverend Futrell was up, washed, dressed in his vestments and in the basement chapel. In five minutes, he'd begin divine service. Upstairs, in her bedroom, his wife had finished getting dressed for chapel. She walked out into the hallway, to that desk with the mirror near the window. About to put on her hat, Mrs. Futrell glanced outside and she saw something. White, like a log. But the longer she looked, the more that pale shape seemed to be a body. Mrs. Futrell thought she could make out legs. She called out to her maid, Come and look at this, Jean. Jean came in, a frightened look on her face. Mrs. Futrell said, What is that over there? Jean knew what she was talking about, saying, Oh, Mrs. Futrell, I just had the same sort of feeling. It's nothing, is it? But deep down, they both seemed to know. At that moment, they saw a little paper boy inside the school grounds. He was coming up the steps, trailed by a black Pomeranian dog. Mrs. Futrell and Jean decided they had to fetch the handyman, Len Roberts, who, according to his Sunday schedule, would now be working outside in the upper grounds. Moments earlier, nine-year-old Francis Walker had come into the Broughton school. Lugging a billy cart piled with fat weekend additions, he and two other newsboys were doing their paper round along Church Street. Francis's little dog was along for the fun. Delivering to the Broughton school fell to young Francis. He grabbed the requisite papers, including a copy of the racy weekly Truth, and entered via the wicket gate. His black dog at his heels, Francis walked up the little steps set in the grassy rise by the pathway that swept up beneath a tree to the main school building. The boy saw something that brought him up short. Just off the path, on the grass, was a bangle, a handkerchief, a handbag and a pair of gloves. Some lady had lost her things. Francis spied the school's handyman a little farther up the path, his back turned, busy sweeping. The paper boy went to him and said, Mister, there is a bag and handkerchief there. Len Roberts turned, didn't say anything, and walked to where Francis had indicated. The paper boy didn't pay him any more mind and went on up to the house to begin delivering his papers. Len glanced at the women's accessories on the grass. Before he could even think to pick them up, his eyes were drawn to something else. Something terrible. To his left, 15 feet farther down towards the brick wall, Near bamboo and a bush, there lay a woman's body. How much Len saw, how close he got, what he did, how much he took in during those few terrible moments wasn't clear. But anyone looking for a few seconds, even from a few yards away, would have seen a woman, almost completely naked, her skin a cold greyish blue. She was on her back, her clothes under and around her, arms outflung, Legs spread so wide, her feet were a yard apart. The woman's head was nearest to where Len stood, but her face was completely covered with some sort of pink material. Len walked or ran, he couldn't be sure which, up the hill to the house. He got there just as Mrs. Futrell and Jean Lamb were coming out. What was down there, Mrs. Futrell wanted to know. What did Len say? It was a bit of a blur. Maybe he didn't say anything. Maybe he said, it must be Dot. Mrs. Futrell either told him to go and look or to go and check that it really was Dot. Len returned to the body and then came straight back to the house. It was Dot. He was sure. She was naked and she was dead. Could they get a sheet so he could cover her up because a couple of boy boarders had come out onto the veranda? 
As Len was draping the body with a sheet, Mrs. Futrell called the school's Dr. Nixon and then asked him to call the police. Len came back to the house. Mrs. Futrell asked him to wait with her in the hall and help her keep the boys from going outside until her husband returned from chapel. Len waited with her. Time slowed. Agitated, Mrs. Futrell asked him if she ought to call the police because they were taking a long time. Len said he'd do it for her if she wanted, but they should try to stay calm. The police would be there as soon as they could. Newcastle Sergeant VK Petith was first on the scene, arriving just before eight, having stopped to pick up Dr. Nixon. Entering the grounds, he saw a man, likely Len though, he wasn't sure later, standing halfway up the grounds to the house and pointing towards the sheet-covered body. Sergeant Petith lifted the sheet. The pink material on the woman's face was a torn corset. Dr. Nixon lifted it away and felt for a pulse he knew he wouldn't find. What had been done to this woman was horrible. Dr. Petith was to say that he remarked, It looks like a mysterious matter, Doctor. The medico had replied, It does so. At 8.15, when chapel was finished, the resident schoolteacher, John Sherlock, informed the Reverend about the police on the grounds and that a body had been found and that it was Dot. Reverend Futrell joined his wife up at the house. Sergeant Petith had used the school phone to call his superiors and then, with Dr Nixon, gone to wait by the body, which was again covered with a sheet. In the house, Mrs Futrell told Mrs Geary the cook to make breakfast and the boys were ushered into the dining room. Not long after, Superintendent White, Inspector Hogan and Detective Sergeant William Alford arrived with other constables and with Acting Government Medical Officer Dr Frederick Collier. By this time, Dot's sister Elsie had phoned their Uncle John. Dot, he said, wasn't at his place. Learning that her sister had gone to the pictures with her boyfriend Tom last night, Elsie went to his boarding house in Hamilton. Arriving at 9.40, she told him her sister was missing. Had Dot and Tom had any sort of argument last night? He said no. All that had happened was that Tom had taken Dot to the movies. The show had ended at quarter past 11. Usually, he would have seen Dot home, but last night he'd remarked to her that he was feeling pretty tired. That was because he'd been doing a lot of overtime lately and worked all that day. Dot had said he should just go home to bed and that she'd be right to get herself back to the school. So Tom had waited with Dot for about 10 minutes at a seat at the tram stop at the intersection of Tudor and Beaumont Streets. Dot had gotten onto the tram around 11.30 and then he'd gone home. It was maybe 8 to 10 minutes to her stop, and the same again to walk up to Broughton, so Dot should have been back there by 11.50 at the latest. But Tom had a theory about what he reckoned had happened. Reaching the school, Dot had probably found that the wicket gate was locked and taken it into her head to go home to Taree. Tom would admit later that this was not a reasonable thing to say or to think. If Dot had been locked out, why would she decide at midnight on a Saturday that the best course of action was to walk away and get a tram to the station and then try to get a train 100 miles north? What would have made more sense was for her to try the rear entrance, or to wait, or to find a phone box and call him, or to go to her uncle's, or if she could bring herself to do it, shout out for someone to let her in. Elsie asked Tom what Dot had been wearing last night so she could tell the police when she reported her missing. 
Tom described her clothing. He said he'd go to the police later, but first, Tom, a good Catholic, had to put on his Sunday best and go to Mass. At Broughton School, detectives were confronted with what would be described as one of the worst crimes in the annals of the state. None of them had seen anything like this before. Dot had been attacked by someone of tremendous strength and with terrible violence, by someone with the mind and the soul of a monster. Her blue cotton dress's eyelets had been ripped apart and the material torn as it was wrenched open from her body. Her singlet had similarly been ripped in half. The elastic left side of her bloomers was snapped and the right leg of these undergarments was hanging by the elastic around her thigh. Dot's pink corset had been torn down the middle. This was what the killer had used to cover her face. Dot's strong suede belt had been pulled from her with such force that the metal tongue had been badly bent back. Near one of her feet was her brown tweed coat, neatly folded, and her pair of black shoes. But there'd been method to this madness too. Dot's stockings, both the woolen and the silk pair, had been taken off with enough care that they weren't ripped at all. Instead, they'd been tied around her neck, a reef knot tight around the front of her throat, and a running knot cinched over that. Dot's lips had abrasions and her tongue was deeply lacerated. There were teeth marks on her chin and dried blood where that wound had bled. Dot had been bitten three times on her right breast and twice on the left. Her left nipple had been bitten off. That these wounds had not bled very much suggested to Dr Collier that Dot had been dying or already dead when they'd been inflicted. Dr Collier went about his observations. He believed that sexual intercourse had not taken place, but her killer had performed oral sex on her. This, the doctor believed, had also been inflicted upon the victim posthumously. His observations of bodily temperature led him to say that Dot had died seven to nine hours earlier. That was between 11 last night and one that morning. From what Dr Collier saw, he thought the killer had put an arm around the back of Dot's neck as he thrust a hand over her mouth to stop her from screaming. The heel of his hand had injured her lips and caused her to bite her tongue badly. Dr Collier thought she'd fainted from this first strangulation. If there was any mercy, it was that she probably hadn't known what had happened to her after that. Detectives inspected Dot's possessions up on the grass. Purse, gloves, bangle, handkerchief. They didn't look like they'd been dropped. There was no real sign of a struggle, but rather a flattened patch of grass that looked like two people had sat there. There was even a half-smoked cigarette and two burned matches. In the gravel a few feet down, there were heel marks that seemed to show where a man and woman had rested their shoes. Detectives believed the initial attack had been made there. As there were no drag marks, it was believed the killer had carried his unconscious victim to the darker and more secluded spot where she'd been found. His ability to do this on sloping ground suggested a man of some strength, just like the state of her shredded clothing. The patch of grass the possessions, the cigarette, they all pointed to Dot having sat beside her killer, someone she'd known. Dr Collier's post-mortem would detect no skin, hair or blood beneath her nails, so that would also reinforce the idea that she'd been surprised and hadn't had time to fight. 
Detectives believe that if she'd been followed by a stranger, Dot would have seen him when she turned to close the wicket gate and she would have had time to scream out. Similarly, if a prowler had been waiting and ambushed her, she would have had the opportunity to let out a cry. The victim being suddenly surprised by someone she knew and felt safe with would explain why, so far, no one at Broughton had reported hearing any sort of noise or scream overnight. What had Dot been doing in the hours leading up to her death? Who had she been with? Answer that, and the police might be closer to discovering the identity of this sex maniac who'd murdered Dorothy May Everett and who, if not caught, might soon strike again. Detectives had a lot of interviews to do and a lot of investigations to make. But straight away, detectives had learned from Broughton residents that Dot last night had gone to the pictures in Hamilton with her boyfriend, Thomas Donegan. He was the first person they needed to talk to. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the five-part Forgotten Australia miniseries, The Vampire Murder. Part two will be released a little later this week. But if you'd like to hear the entire story right now, you can do so by becoming a supporter of Forgotten Australia. The link is in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.